I'm Ken, and this is Teach Medieval. today's episode, the final episode in our mini-series on the Byzantine Empire by 1095, I am once again extremely excited to be welcoming Professor Jonathan Harris. Hello, Jonathan. Hello, Ken. Jonathan is Professor of the History of Byzantium at Royal Holloway University of London and the author of several essential texts on the empire, uh, my favorite of which is Byzantium and the Crusade, which is coming out in a third edition uh, in December 2022. Now, Before we begin, I do want to take a second to remind you that this is the fifth and final episode of a larger series uh, on the topic of the Byzantine Empire by 1095. So if you haven't already listened to episodes one, two, three, and four, please go and do so now and then come back and rejoin us here when you're ready. Right. Now that we've got those introductions out of the way, Jonathan, let's begin, shall we? Let's begin. Right, our topic for this, our fifth and final episode, is how successful was Alexios I Komnenos in stabilizing the empire? Um, so let's begin at the obvious part. Who on earth was Alexios Komnenos? What do we know about this man? What's his background? How did he become emperor? Well, he's another one of these generals um, who, in the rather chaotic um, situation of the 1070s, uh, makes a bid for the throne. Um, to start with, he was loyal to the reigning emperor. He puts down a number of revolts, but eventually he decides to give it a go himself. Uh, he marches his army to Constantinople in, in April of uh, 1081, and he overthrows the emperor Nikiaforos III Botaniates, who, of course, had overthrown the previous emperor. So Alexios's accession to the throne in 1081 is just another example then of a disgruntled general rebelling against the incumbent emperor. That's right, yes. Right, okay, so let's have a proper look then at the reign of Alexios I Komnenos. Uh, thinking back, we've got three issues. We've got the internal threats to the empire, the dynastic rivalry that's been around for generations, the civil war that's flared up as a result of it, and then the economic uh, collapse associated with the loss of all that territory in Anatolia. Secondly, we've got the Western threats. Over in the Italian peninsula, we have the Normans. Uh, and in the Balkans, we've got the Pechenegs. And then thirdly, we had the Eastern threat in Anatolia from those Seljuks who had swept into that region following their victory at Manzikert. Let's go through these three issues one at a time and assess the degree to which Alexios I Komnenos was successful in dealing with them. Now, if it's okay with you, Jonathan, what we'll do is we'll separate this discussion into two halves. Firstly, we'll consider his successes. We'll consider the evidence in favor of Alexios. And then when we've done that, we'll consider the evidence against any limitations, any failings. Okay? Yes. Right. Well, then let's begin with issue one, the internal threats to the Byzantine Empire. Let's start with the dynastic rivalry. So besides putting himself on the throne, how else did Alexios seek to deal with the dynastic rivalry and seek to bring this civil war to an end? 
Well, Alexius is looking at this situation where basically every general thinks he's got a chance for the throne. Um, so how, how are we going to remove this perception? Well, we need to get people to understand that um, imperial power belongs to only one family. Okay. So from now on, I'm going to rule through my family. I'm going to give all the important posts to members of my family. And um, although I've had to give important um, titles to some of these other generals to buy them off, I'm going to invent new titles, uh, which are more important than those, and that'll kind of trump them. Um, and that way, all imperial power will belong to the Komnenos family. Okay. And to be honest with you, um, when you, although Alexis's reign is plagued by revolts, um, thereafter, the, the reigns of John II and Emmanuel I, they're relatively trouble-free um, because people have come to accept, no, it's the Komnenos dynasty is the ruling dynasty, um, and that gives a certain stability. Right, so he, sur- he surrounds himself by, by loyalists, well, by family members who can, who can trust, therefore, to be loyal. That's pretty much it. Yeah, that's pretty much it. Right. Um, let's move to the economic meltdown following the loss of all that territory in Anatolia. What measures did Alexios take to try to stabilise the Byzantine economy? Well, this is a tricky one, isn't it? Because, yes, his, his income has been pretty much hard. So I, I suspect his treasury would not have been full um, to start with. Um, he has no alternative but to do what others have done and carry on debasing the coinage to make it go further. Um, but then he hits on, on a way of getting hold of bullion um, to issue new coins. He, um, as it's euphemistically said, he borrowed from the church. <laughs> right. Um, he collected up lots of um, chalices and patents and ecclesiastical uh, silver and goldware, melts them down and turns them into coins. And he issues a new uh, a new gold coin with a much um, higher gold content. Mm-hmm. Um, Alexius introduces a thing called the hyperperon, um, which wasn't didn't have such a high gold content, but nevertheless is a a return to a, a kind of high value coin. And the, these coins um, have kind of prestige. People know that they are full weight, and so they they go further. They're accepted. Um, by allies as payments to fight on the Byzantine side. And that helps, I think, to put um, the, the economy on, on, a, on a much better footing. Right, OK. So reforming the currency yeah. and, and borrowing from the church. OK, so that's issue one, the internal threats. Uh, Alexios does manage to rein in that dynastic rivalry One, by putting himself on the throne as a very experienced general with an iron grip on government affairs. And two, by surrounding himself by family members who can therefore trust to be loyal. And he does manage to deal with that economic instability too. One, through the confiscation of church treasures. And two, by reforming the currency, issuing a new gold coin called the Hyperperon, which is far more trustworthy and far more reliable. Right. Let's move on to the second issue then, shall we? Uh, the Western threats that the Byzantine Empire was facing. And let's start, shall we, with the Normans in Italy and Sicily. Because when we left uh, Robert Giscard, he was besieging Dyrrhachium in 1081. Yes, um, the Alexius goes over with his army to stop him, and there's a battle fought at Dyrrhachion in, in October 1081. Um, and it's an absolute disaster for Alexius. Mm. I mean, it far worse than Mansica, the entire Byzantine army is, is, is wiped out. 
Um, and Alexius has to, has to run away, has to gallop away at high speed to escape being captured himself. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't begin well. But I think Alexius kind of, of learns from that. And then he adopts other tactics. Um, basically, he, he pays the he makes a treaty with the Venetians to get them to use their fleet to in, interfere with uh, Robert's supply lines. Um, his agents are active in Italy to kind of stir up revolts um, against Robert and, uh, among some of his his subjects in southern Italy. Um, he's talking to the German emperor um, and um, he's also lucky that the German emperor does invade Italy um, in order to attack Rome and the Pope. And, and Robert Giscard has to go back uh, to rescue the Pope. So all this sort of weakens the Norman war effort and gradually Alexius mm-hmm. uh, gains ground. Um, he pulls off quite a, um, a significant victory in 1083 against um, Robert's son, Bermond, at Larissa. Um, and uh, Robert's on his way back to take command, but he dies on the island of Catalonia. And from that point, really, the, the, the Norman campaign is finished and, and, and they withdraw. So at the end of the day, Alexius does win. Would Henry IV have invaded Italy anyway? Oh, yes. Did Alexius send, did he part fund that invasion? Did he send huge sums of money to Henry IV? Um, he had earlier on um, made a down payment to um, Henry on the understanding that Henry would invade Italy. Um, Henry didn't because he um, had a they had to deal with a revolt by by Rudolf of Swabia, um, but um, he did in the end. Um, but again, it's not, not at the behest of the Byzantine Emperor. Right. Um, let's stay in the West and let's go to the Pechenegs. Uh, the last time we left them, they were in alliance, a temporary alliance with Chaka of Chmyrna. How did Alexios deal with them? Well, that was a very nasty moment. Um, luckily, Constantinople holds out. Uh, the following spring, the spring of 1091, Alexius does gather an army. Uh, he marches out into the Balkans against the Pechenegs and he meets them at the Battle of Mount Livunion, uh, um, where he scores a spectacular success. Yeah, because I've got a quote here from Anna Komnena, his daughter. Alexios charged into the midst of the enemy, hacking at his immediate adversaries and, with loud cries, striking fear into those far off. A whole people, numbered not in their tens of thousands, but in countless multitudes, with their women and children, was utterly wiped out on that day. Now, with the Normans, his his victory at Larissa was more a kind of um, small reverse he inflicted on them, but this was a, a major defeat. I mean, the the, pet, the power of the Petronides for the time being broken. Uh, it's probably the greatest triumph of, of Alexis's reign. Greatest victory. Well, I, I would have thought so, um, because, you know, literally in, on one day, mm-hmm. he has put it to the, the Pechenegg threat uh, for at least a generation. Um, yeah, I, I, I would have said that that really was his greatest triumph. OK, so that's issue two, the Western threats that the Empire faced. Alexios does manage to deal with a Norman threat. One, by paying the Venetians to disrupt Norman supply lines. Two, by currying favour with the German Emperor Henry IV, who subsequently invades Italy and distracts Robert Giscard. And three, therefore being able to defeat Robert's son, Bohemond, at the Battle of Larissa. And he does manage to deal with the threat from the Pechenegs by achieving what Jonathan has very convincingly laid out for us, the greatest victory of his reign at the Battle of Lavunia. 
Right, so let's go to the next threat, the Seljuk threat in the east. Uh, what actions did Alexios take to deal with Suleiman, and how successful was he in doing so? Well, you have to see the situation he's in, really. Um, the danger from the Normans and the Pechenegs uh, between 1081 and 1091 um, is pressing. So effectively, um, there's very little he can do apart from just leave Asia Minor to itself uh, and leave people, leave Suleiman in position um, in Nicaea. He's not a threat. Um, we can deal with him later. And secondly, he's also a source of troops um, to help deal with the Normans. Mm -hmm. uh, so um, to some extent, he isn't a threat. It's only after 1091. Um, that Alexius really starts thinking, well, how am I going to get Asia Minor back? Um, and he makes a plan and he puts it into operation in 1095 uh, when he sends an embassy to Pope Urban II at Piacenza um, to ask, it would seem, for help against the Turks. Right, yeah. So up, up until that point in the early 1090s, would it be fair to say that Alexios's main means of dealing with the Eastern threat is essentially to let it be? Yes. Because it's, yeah, it's nowhere near as imminently dangerous uh, as the Western threat coming from the Normans and the Pechenegs. That's right. Right, so that's it. The third threat to the Byzantine Empire, the Seljuks in Anatolia. Alexios does manage to fend off any more considerable losses of territory in that region by one, recognizing Suleiman's sovereignty over the regions that he's already conquered, and two, by bringing him on side by using his men against Bohemond in the west at the Battle of Larissa. Right, so there we go. That's the case in favor of Alexios I Komnenos. The case that uh, he was successful in stabilizing the empire by the time of the First Crusade, 1095. But Jonathan, as an esteemed academic and renowned expert in your field, you will be more than well aware that every historian's favorite word is... However, uh, which is, I'm afraid, one of my favorite words, I must admit. <laughs> exactly. Right, it's now time to consider... The evidence against. Okay, let's go back through these three issues and let's consider the other side of the argument. Let's look at the internal threats, that dynastic rivalry and civil war and that economic collapse. Let's look at the Western threats from the Norms and the Pechenegs, and let's look at the Eastern threats from the Seljuks. And let's ask ourselves, have we been over-exaggerating Alexios' success? Uh, do we need to qualify our assessment of him somewhat? Let's start with the internal threats. Now, Jonathan, did Alexios face any issues uh, with his policies? Let's start, like, for example, with the, with the dynastic rivalry. I mean, were there any challenges? Was there any disquiet? over this policy, for example, of surrounding himself with family members? Well, what you have to remember with Alexis is how do we know about his reign? Um, we really only have one major source, and that is Anna Comnina. Uh, we do have another source about Alexis's reign, and that's a man called John Zonoras. Mm -hmm. um, and he's pretty pro-Alexius, um, but he does um, have a few reservations. Uh, one of them is about this policy of promoting members of his own family. Um, as a way of um, uh, securing stability. Um, and he presents this in a very different way from Anna Comnina. He says, well, look, this is systematic um, nepotism. Mm -hmm. Basically, 
um, all these, uh, what it is, is basically uh, members of the Comnenus family turning up, being given fat sinecures and getting their snouts in the trough. Right. Um, that's really all it is. So that's his kind of take on that. Um, it, it isn't really quite as, as, as impressive when you look at it in, in that way. Mm-hmm. It doesn't deny that it does seem to have brought a certain stability. So does, does Alexios face uh, some pushback then against, these, against this policy? I mean, in 1094, for example, is quite a threatening coup, is there not? Well, there's always going... Or attempted coup. Yes, attempted coup. There's always going to be rivals out there. I mean, the family of the, of the Emperor Romanus IV, Diogenes... Uh, in 1094, make a bid for the throne. I mean, it is it is foiled. Um, but there are constant attempts. Anna Comnena accounts how there are several attempts to assassinate Alexius, um, this kind of thing. So there, there is a great deal of stability. So if Alexius's policy yields results, it does so um, in the next few generations, not in his not during his own reign. So, but what about his economic measures? Were they wholly successful? It's always difficult with med- medieval economy because we don't have the kind of statistical evidence that, that we have now to base it on. Um, certainly, um, the, the coinage re- reform helps to bolster Byzantium's image as this kind of fountain of gold, you know, the place where uh, if you serve the Byzantine emperor, you will receive generous salary. Yeah, he seems to have uh, no end of these gold coins to hand out to friends and allies and that kind of thing. Um, so I think um, credit where credit's due, he does does seem to have done that. The problem is, of course, is I think really the loss of territory is always going to mean that the Byzantine emperor is running to keep still um, with the um, with his uh, income. It's always going to be less than it, that his predecessors enjoyed, and that is something that Alexis has to deal with. And no doubt, under his grandson Manuel I, in, imperial expenditure, especially on the army, does seem to uh, greatly outstrip um, income, uh, and that does create problems, which are going to feed into what happens ultimately in, in 1204, where the empire collapses. Okay, so that's the internal threats. Let's move to the Western threats. Uh, should Alexios be taking all the credit for dealing with uh, Robert Gisco? Well, yes, there's no doubt that, that he, he did get lucky. The main thing that forced Robert to withdraw was the fact that the um, German emperor decided to invade Italy um, to deal with the Pope, uh, with whom he has a dispute over the investiture of bishops. Um, he does. He the German emperor goes down to Rome, um, besieges it, um, and the Pope is sort of holed up in the Cast- Castel Sant'Angelo, and Robert Guiscard has to come and rescue him and take him off to Salerno. Uh, so um, that helped to um, distract the Normans. But again, um, Alexius is pursuing a very Byzantine policy here of um, avoiding pitch battles. Um, it's clear that you can't win. So we're just going to grind our enemy down. And that's really how he does it. It's not very um, kind of romantic or very uh, exciting, but it does deliver in the end in this rather unglamorous way. It's a kind of unglamorous victory, but it was a victory at the end of the day the Normans did withdraw. And then is it typhoid or typhus, I think, that takes Robert out in the end, which again is another stroke of luck for Alexios? Um, it could be. I mean, he's 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 not a young guy um, by any means. Um, so by medieval, yeah. So um, I think it kind of been a huge surprise uh, when he passed away. Um, but there's something like that. Certainly, he's lucky that that um, 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 Robert dies when he does. 
There's certainly not much to argue with with, uh, with dealing with the Pechenegs. So let's go straight to the Eastern threat. Suleiman, the relationship with Suleiman, and then after the passing of Malik Shah, can we see uh, Alexios struggling in Anatolia at any point? I, th- I think Alexios is doing in, in Anatolia the only thing um, that he possibly can is just leave him. Yeah. Because it's not a threat. The threat is in the West. The threat is the Petronegs. The threat is the Normans. Um, let's just leave him. Okay, he doesn't achieve much. Mm-hmm. Um, he waits until he's got rid of the Normans. Uh, he's dealt with the Petronegs. Um, and then he puts his plan um, into action by approaching the Pope in 1095. Well, in fact, that's the perfect point uh, at which to end this conversation. And there you go. That's the evidence against. As far as the internal threats go, one, there was open and repeated criticism against Alexios's policy of surrounding himself by family members. It was nepotism in many people's eyes. Two, there were those repeated attempted coups and assassination attempts, including by Nikephoros Diogenes in 1094. And three, those economic reforms never quite managed to refill the imperial treasury to pre-1071 levels, and so Alexios was always struggling for sources of income to maintain his diplomatic and military expenditure. As far as the Western threats go, there was an element of luck involved. One, there was the fact that Henry IV, the Emperor of Germany, decided to invade in 1082, thereby distracting Robert Guiscard and withdrawing him from the Balkans. And two, ultimately, there was the death of Robert Guiscard, either from old age or disease. As far as the Eastern threats go, one, as Jonathan mentioned for us in an earlier episode, there was Suleiman's decision to take that Byzantine city of Antioch in 1085, despite the fact that he was in alliance with Alexios. And two, once the mostly reliable, mostly stable relationship with Suleiman was uh, extinguished with his death in 1086, trouble began to resurface in Anatolia, with, as Jonathan mentioned in a previous episode, Men such as Danishman Ghazi, Chaka, and Suleiman's son, Kilijarzma. Okay, there you go, dear listener. Both sides of the argument. Having listened, are you personally convinced that Alexios I Komnenos did stabilize the empire by the time of the First Crusade? Why? Or why not? It's not our intention here at Teach Medieval to provide you with the answer. That bit's up to you. Uh, However, we do hope that listening to this episode has been of value to you in your learning, whether that be at school or at college or at home in your own free time. And if it has, then that's wholly down to the generosity and expertise of Professor Jonathan Harris. Jonathan, thank you so much for your tremendous contribution today. We really, really appreciate it. Very much enjoyed it. Thank you for inviting me. And that's it for this mini-series. Jonathan, I do hope you've enjoyed your time with us and that you might consider possibly returning at some point in the future to help us dissect another topic in a similarly wonderful fashion. It would be a pleasure. Wonderful. And if you, dear listener, have enjoyed this mini-series and you'd like what we're doing here at Teach Medieval, then do please consider subscribing so that you don't miss a single episode in the future. And please also consider giving us a glowing review or a five-star rating and recommending us to absolutely everybody that you know. Uh, Thanks for listening. I've been Ken, and this is Teach Medieval.